together. And let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Hebrews together. And if you're with us this morning and you don't own a, have a Bible here this morning, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And just wave to them, get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. That way you get to hear the Word of God, but you get to read it as well. It has double the impact. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift to you today uh, from the Lord. The Lord wants everyone to have one of His Bibles, His Word, and then to read it and open it up to you. It's just a beautiful thing that He does. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, speaking of the holy place part of the tabernacle and temple. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He just mind just wants to go into all of that. It's a picture of Christ, but that's not his point. And so he continues, and he said, Now when these things had been thus prepared... The priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the Holy of Holies, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered and which cannot, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience concerned only with foods and various and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Some of you just listening to that being read are thinking to yourself, what in the world was that? 
And um, so sometimes you read the book of Hebrews, especially when you're new to the Bible and just starting, even after you've walked with the Lord for 30 years, sometimes you can come to the book of Hebrews and go, what was that? Well, we'll try and figure it out together here in just a moment, but we'll need prayer first. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for every portion of it. God breathed. It's here for a reason. And we know that this passage is in your book because it's intended to do something good inside of us. There's something that you want us to understand about yourself that you know is important for us to understand in our relationship with you. And for those, Lord, that stand before you this morning that haven't yet put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. There's something you want to speak to them as well. And so we pray that this passage would have a loud, wonderful, clear voice to each and every one of us this morning as we study it together. And we look to your Holy Spirit to accomplish that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, the writer of the book of Hebrews returns to a subject that he has already very beautifully and very biblically addressed earlier in the letter. And that is the point that he's making is the superiority of Jesus as our high priest to the Old Testament high priest. He returns to the subject not in order to just Uh, repeat himself for the sake of repeating himself, but in order to show the superiority of Christ as our high priest in regard to a subject that is evidently and obviously very important to him and obviously he thinks ought to be very, very important to each and every one of us as Christians. There's a single word that's repeated in this section. It's uh, used once in verse 9 and again in verse 14. And this word is the word conscience. He is very concerned about this thing called conscience in each of our lives. What is this thing that we call conscience? Our conscience is an intuitive, God-given knowledge of right and wrong. And coupled with that intuitive, God-given knowledge of right and wrong is also the realization that I should always do what is right and I should never do what is wrong. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, declaring that every single person who is born into this world possesses this thing called a conscience from God. And we look all around the world, and we see that it's so. All around the world, there's the recognition that lying is wrong, stealing is wrong, murder is wrong, and so forth. And all around the world, we see the uniformity of this conscience that man possesses, that that the Uh, that to refrain from lying is always right and good. To refrain from stealing and murder and so forth is right. Now, one of the interesting things about our conscience is that our conscience that each one of us possesses from God 
is higher than our actual practice. And that's important to understand. No one lives up to the standard of our conscience. We all fall short of the standard of our conscience. It's called a guilty conscience. And whether we feel that for five seconds or five years or 50 years, all of us experience it because we all live a life below the standard of our conscience. And the fact that we live below the standard of our conscience communicates a couple things to us. Number one, it tells us that our conscience doesn't have its origin in us because it's higher than us. So it must mean that this conscience that we possess has its origin in someone who is greater than us. It comes from the God who has created us. And so our conscience is ever testifying to us of two great truths every single day. Number one, that we have been created by God who is greater than us. And number two, that we have fallen from that something higher that we were originally created for. So all day, every day, this great gulf that exists between the standard of my conscience and my actual practice It's just like this great neon light that is communicating to us, you are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen. You were once created to be something far greater than what you are today, but you have fallen from that high place, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. I think that most people look at the Bible, especially when they're new to the Bible or know nothing about the Bible, but so often a person can look at the Bible and just automatically think that it's just a hopelessly complex book, impossible to understand. I mean, there's just no making rhyme or reason from it, you know, related to it. I mean, it's got historical books and it's got poetic books and it's got prophetic books and all of these things. It's got an Old Testament. It's got a New Testament. But the fact of the matter is the Bible is a very, very simple book. It's a record of three things. Number one, the creation of man, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The fall of man from our original creation, the loftiness of it, Genesis chapter 3. And then the second half of Genesis chapter 3 and the entirety of the rest of the Bible is a record of the redemption or the saving of man from that fallen condition. That is all the Bible is. Now, concerning our conscience, a conscience is a very, very valuable thing because if we heed it, it will always direct us away from doing wrong and spare us the consequences of it. If we heed it, it will always direct us toward doing what is right. Sometimes you'll hear an atheist or a secular humanist. They reject the idea 
uh, that a belief in God or a belief in the Bible is necessary in order to be a moral person. And so they'll say something like, I know lots of atheists, I know lots of secular humanists who are very moral people relative to other people. And in fact, they'll say, I know lots of atheists and secular humanists who are more moral than many of the religious people that I know in life. The fact of the matter is that that can be absolutely true. But what the atheist and the secular humanist fails to understand is that they owe even their limited morality to the very fact, to the very God, rather, that they don't believe exists. For what keeps them in line in life is their conscience. And the conscience is a gift from God. It's not anything that any man or woman can take any credit for. When we do what is right in life, we enjoy a clear conscience. And what is a clean clean conscience or a clear conscience? It is a conscience that is free of guilt. And when we do something wrong in life, then we do experience a guilty conscience. Why? Because God does not want us to grow comfortable with our sin or to grow comfortable settling into a life of sin or rebellion against his standard. Now, we all know something about a guilty conscience because the Bible teaches concerning every single human being in this world that there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans again, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, again, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. When I commit a sin, I don't only commit a sin against other people, but I also, and supremely what happens is I'm committing a sin against God. And so we know that all of this is true, that we're guilty before God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And the reason that we know it to be true is because our conscience tells us what we are, and our conscience will always tell us what we are. Now, the problem is that when we finally come to that place in life, when we're sick and tired of a life of sin and selfishness, and now we want to come to God, we want to know Him, we want to obey Him, we want to live a different kind of life. As we begin to approach God, we are immediately confronted with the guilt of our past sin. Our conscience tells us that we're not worthy of a relationship with God. Our conscience tells us that He's too holy, He's too perfect, He's too great for us to have a relationship with Him in the light of who and what we have been in our past and what we've done in our past. And so what happens? When we're conscious of this guilty conscience that we have that is just, it's a right thing in our lives, But now we want to know God. We want to walk with God. We want to 
be in relationship with him, the relationship that we've been created for. Where do we go? What do we do in that when we reach that place in life? And the writer tells us, first of all, what we shouldn't do in verses 9 and 10. We shouldn't go to the old covenant of the law of Moses for an ultimate solution to our guilt. In verses 1 through 5, he makes mention of certain details related to the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and the temple in order to kind of give us an understanding of the context in which the priests operated in. That's why he says, I I, I say these things, but I can't speak about these in, in detail right now. He's just establishing, he's introducing within our minds the picture of the Old Testament tabernacle or the temple, the priests, the compartments of the temple that they operated in. And as he speaks about it in verse 3, he speaks of the fact that it was made up of two compartments. He then speaks of the various furnishings and the tapestries and so forth. And then in verses 6 through 10, he gives us details concerning the priest's access within the tabernacle. And the regular priests, not the high priests, just the regular priests, they ministered daily, he tells us, in the first part of the tabernacle, the holy place, the first compartment or room that you walked into in the tabernacle. But then he tells us in verse 7 that the holy of holies could only be entered one day of the year on the Day of Atonement and then only by the high priest, and only then after having offered a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of the people. And what the Holy Spirit is communicating through all of this in verses 8, 9, and 10 is that even all of that could not make even the high priest who performed the service in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of all, perfect in regard to conscience, verse 9. So, and stay with me. So, the holiest priest in the holiest place on the holiest day of all could not be made perfect in regard to conscience, much less anyone else, much less all the regular folks of the children of Israel who were gathered outside of the tabernacle waiting for the high priest to come out of the Holy of Holies and to re-emerge. And through these events on the Day of Atonement, the Holy Spirit was communicating to all of the people who were watching and waiting outside God is too holy for any of us to approach on the basis of an animal sacrifice, on the basis of the law of Moses, on the basis of the old covenant. It took all of that for just one man to enter into the model of heaven for just a few moments in the entire Year, And if it took all of that for that to happen, then this sacrifice and this priesthood is powerless to bring you into a personal relationship with God. 
And he tells us in verse 9 that the old covenant could never quiet a conscience. In verse 10, it cannot change a human life. And the fact that the gifts and the sacrifices were offered again and again and again and again was a public confession of sorts that this cannot make anyone perfect in regard to conscience. It is a way to express our desire to be holy. It is a way to express our desire to please God, verse 10, but it cannot cleanse a conscience, verse 9, and it cannot make and bring inward change to our lives, verse 10. Why? Because these things, verse 9, were only symbolic. And that's the word that he uses in verse 9. These things were only symbolic of a greater high priest, a greater sacrifice to come, who would offer a sacrifice that would allow us to follow him, not merely into the model, into the holy of holies, but into heaven itself. The old covenant could not make even the high priest perfect in regard to conscience, much less anyone else. In other words, all of these offerings and ordinances were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They did not provide a sinner with a perfect or complete confidence of the personal forgiveness of sins and the confidence of acceptance by God that our consciences need in order to enjoy the freedom to approach God and to worship God without any reservation. But as the writer brings out later in chapter 10, verse 3, he said, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Stay with me. The sacrifices of the law of Moses majored in reminding the worshiper of their sin. And it minored in giving the guilty sinner the confidence that our consciences need concerning God's cleansing and the forgiveness of sins. For the simple reason that one of the reasons that the law was given was to prepare man for the sacrifice of Jesus, who alone would provide mankind with a confidence of forgiveness that is so great that it will cleanse the guiltiest of human consciousness, consciences from guilt in condemnation, and thus to provide us with a confidence in our personal relationship with God that was utterly unknown under the old covenant. It did not provide them with the perfect or complete forgiveness that a sinner needs. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, he brings out in chapter 10, verse 4. Until 
the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, the sinner always had the consciousness that he had not yet come into contact with the sacrifice that was powerful enough, majestic enough, personal enough to overwhelm and to cleanse us of the personal guilt that we feel in our conscience due to sin. But in verse 14, the writer tells us that this is exactly what Jesus offers us. Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus doesn't merely cover our sin. He provides us with a complete forgiveness of our sins. Jesus doesn't just make us outwardly clean and ceremonially clean. He cleanses our consciences from guilt. And He gives us great boldness and joy and confidence in a personal relationship with God. Jesus' forgiveness reaches all the way into this deep inner thing called a conscience. And the forgiveness that is found in Christ alone produces a peace there, which is where we need it. The greatest damage that is done in our lives due to sin is not external, but it's internal. It is what it does to our conscience. The unrest that it brings to our conscience, the guilt that it brings to our conscience, even the torment that it brings to our conscience... But when we put our faith in Christ for salvation, we not only receive the complete forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and He brings a supernatural, God-given peace to our consciences concerning our past sins. And why is that possible? Why is the Holy Spirit able to do that? He tells us why in verse 14. The blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross for our sin. Because we recognize in the sacrifice of Jesus, as we look at Him nailed to that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. As we see Him on that cross, we know way deep, 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 deep down inside of us that no sin or lifetime of sin is greater than that sacrifice. We know that to be true because the Spirit bears witness to that. And that knowledge brings peace to a guilty conscience. It silences 
a guilty conscience. It satisfies a guilty conscience. It allows a guilty conscience to rest because deep down inside we know that we should be punished for our sins. We know that we shouldn't get off free for what we've done. And thus, any attempt by this world or by other people to minimize our sin or to tell us they're really nothing, or to give us a word of false comfort concerning our sin, or even give us a whole list of religious works to do, can never bring peace to a guilty conscience. Only justice for my sin can bring that. Only the knowledge that I am right with God, the knowledge that He is not unhappy with me or angry with me can bring peace to a guilty conscience. And only the cross of Calvary provides that to us. And when we see Jesus hanging on that cross for our sins, we realize that no one got away with anything concerning sin. And then further... When we see Jesus hanging on that cross for our sins in order to provide the full and satisfying payment for our sins, no one can say, my sin is greater than that sacrifice. No one can believe that to be true. The worst sinner in the world cannot look at the cross of Calvary and believe that. There is something about that cross, that sacrifice, That Savior, that scene that overwhelms even the guiltiest of consciences. And it gives hope for forgiveness and peace. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to the fact that something great, something majestic, something indescribable has happened in human history that is even greater than all of my sin in testifying to Christ's work upon the cross. In order to cleanse and to free a guilty conscience, God had to provide us with a something that we recognize as being infinitely greater than all of our sins. And that something is the salvation that is found in the blood of Christ. So that now, whenever I'm reminded of the guilt of my past sin, it is completely overwhelmed by something that is infinitely greater, and that is the knowledge of God's love for me 
and the completeness of His forgiveness of my sins demonstrated by Jesus' death upon that cross. And a cleansed conscience is one that is fully aware of what we've been. But it is now even more, 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 infinitely more aware of and dominated by the forgiveness that is found in Christ. A cleansed conscience is one that is fully aware of what we have been in life. But it is now even more, 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 infinitely more aware and dominated by the forgiveness that is found in Christ. And that awareness works like this in our lives. When every reminder of our past sin is turned into a celebration of God's love and of His grace and of His forgiveness. When I'm reminded of my past sin and I'm able to say to God, Lord, a reminder of my past sin has entered into my mind. But in the light of the price that Jesus paid on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins, I refuse to rummage through my past, but instead choose to give you praise and thanks and honor and glory right now for the completeness of the forgiveness you have provided me in Him. And every time the world or the flesh or the devil tries to remind us of our past, we can turn it into a worship service in our hearts, into a Holy Ghost hootenanny. I'll tell you, the devil's not going to pick on us or remind us of our past too often if every time we use that to then cause us to turn immediately to praise to God for the greatness and the majesty of the cross of our Savior and the greatness of our Savior. That's exactly exactly what the Apostle Paul did concerning his considerable past. And he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He knew what he was. He said, however, and that's a wonderful word, For this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And as he thinks about it, he does not allow his mind to stay on the greatness of the sin of his past. It would have ruined him. It would have ruined even the Apostle Paul. And instead he declares, now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. And it is only the sacrifice of Jesus that allowed the Apostle Paul to do that with his guilty conscience. And it is only the sacrifice of Jesus that makes this possible in each of our lives as well. And we say praise the Lord for that.
People try to deal with a guilty conscience in lots of ways. The world around us, we're familiar with it, some of our own lives before we came to know Christ. We see it in the people that are around us in life. People sometimes try to deal with a guilty conscience by just ignoring it. Or they spend all their life trying to make excuses for or justify the sin that they committed. It was the circumstances. It was somebody else. It was this. It was that. It's never their fault. And they never realize that this guilty conscience is tormenting them to such a degree that they find themselves having to go to such lengths to address it. Some people try to deal with a guilty conscience by drugs and alcohol that then lead to addiction. It makes you wonder how much addiction, how much a guilty conscience is behind that kind of addiction. Other people party like maniacs. They don't have, they don't have literally five minutes a day in their life that is not scheduled, that there isn't some noise going on, some TV, some movie, some radio, some something is going all the time, some event that they're going to, some event that they are. They can never allow themselves to get quiet enough or because an active life, that busy life, it, it causes them never to have to think about the guilt of their sin. And then some people turn to religious activity. And they do all manner of penance and all of these different things to, in order to try and silence a guilty conscience. But the writer says they're all dead works. They cannot cleanse a conscience. But there is a way to cleanse a guilty conscience. And it's through faith in Christ. That's God's way. By looking to Jesus Christ and saying, God, I believe your assessment of me that I am a sinner. I'm guilty in your sight. I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. And now I want a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent Jesus to die on that cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sins. And this morning, God, I honor you by putting my trust and my faith into the Savior that you have sent into the world. I put my trust in what he did on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins and in his burial and in his resurrection from the dead. And when a person does that, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we are born again by the Holy Spirit. We receive the forgiveness of God and the cleansing from a guilty conscience. And it's priceless. And every single person in this room and in this world, but I've only got who's in this room right now, can leave this room today cleansed and forgiven by God Himself because of the greatness of that sacrifice. Let's pray together.
And I'd like us just to take a couple of minutes here this morning to give an invitation to anyone here today where you have never, ever trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Never received a cleansing not only from of your sin, but also the releasing you from a guilty conscience. You need to put your trust in Christ. If you sit here today and you say, I'm tormented by my past. I've never thought about the kind of behaviors that I'm engaging in all in an attempt to silence the voice of a conscience inside of me that is intended to bring me to God. Or you may be sitting here today and you've never given a conscience a second thought at all. But you sit here and the Holy Spirit bears witness to you of the power of Jesus to forgive you and to save you. And you want that today. I just ask is, is that you would simply stand where it is that you're seated right now. Just stand up right up out of that seat. And if you do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you in a prayer to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and allow him to do a miracle in your life of giving you everlasting life and the forgiveness of sins today and beginning a relationship with him. And then we're going to pray for you. That's all that it is. It's just you and God in a very large living room. And he is speaking to your heart. And he wants to save you and to forgive you today. Just obey his voice. Stand. And I will take you from there. Go ahead and stand right where you're seated right now. God bless you, sir. I see you. God bless you. Anybody else here this morning? Just listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking to you today. Just listen to your Creator. Listen to the God who loves you. Anybody else here this morning? Just stand where it is that you're seated. Never take the voice of God for granted. Never take the draw or the impulse of, of the Holy Spirit related to your life to bring you to Christ. Just ne never assume that's always going to be the case. God bless you, young man. I see you. Never just assume that that's always just going to be there in the same strength. It means something. God is speaking. And all we need to do is just be humble enough to listen to him and, and to obey him. And then he takes everything from there. Anybody else here this morning? One more moment. Anybody else here this morning? Just stand where it is that you're seated. All right, I'm going, gentlemen, I'm going to lead you in a prayer that if this prayer resembles what you want to say to God this morning, then I just ask that you repeat it after me. You don't have to shout it out, but say it out loud. It's just kind of a public confession of your faith, and you're going to just invite the Lord into your heart. So just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I confess my sin to you this morning. I have been less than perfect all my life. And I realize it separated me from a relationship with you. 
And now I want that relationship. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse my guilty conscience as I put my faith right now in your Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of my sins. I trust in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I honor you this morning by putting my faith in him. Thank you for saving me this morning. Thank you for making it a free gift. Thank you for loving me the way that you do. Thank you for what Jesus has done for me. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we want to pray for you. Lord, we thank you for each of these men. And we ask, Lord, that you would baptize them with your Holy Spirit right now. Just overflow them and give them the power that we've even sung about here today. And as Pastor Jonathan has read about and prayed about, the power to live a completely different life. We pray, Lord, that you would give them that power to live a life like Christ now. We pray for this wonderful book called the Bible, and we ask that now that you live inside of them, that you would open this book up to them in a supernatural way, Lord, and that you would feed their spirit and that you would lead them in the ways that are both righteous and everlasting. Lord, make this book a very deep and close personal friend to them in the place that they come to know you best. We commend them to you today, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of their day. We ask that you would bless them, that you would keep them, that like the Apostle Paul, you would use them in their testimony for your glory, giving word to the whole world that if you are able to save them, then you are able and willing to save all. And we ask all these things of you, Lord, for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord.